Easter Resurrection Sunday. It's good to see all of you here this morning worshiping together on this joyous day. Um, I want us to focus today on what Easter Resurrection is all about. Obviously, today is a very joyous day uh, for many churches, for many believers who gather uh, to worship our Lord on this day. And I want us to know and investigate why is it so important? Specifically, this resurrection uh, that we keep talking about. Because it's the resurrection that, that Christians trust and place their faith in. We believe that because of the resurrection, there's a new creation, a new beginning. That's why Sunday, if you look on your calendar, it's the first day of the week. It is because of Jesus' resurrection, the, the bringing in of a new creation. And it's very important to us. In fact, it's so important that our faith, our religion, hangs on this resurrection. And as important as certain things, such as being forgiven of our sins, having eternal life with Christ in heaven, as important as those things are, we must not forget the importance of the resurrection. The Apostle Paul, he even writes, For I delivered to you as a first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, our faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. If in Christ we have hope in this earthly life only, then we are of all people most to be pitied. So Christianity hangs upon the actual, physical, historical resurrection of Jesus Christ. And why is it so important? You know, a few Easter's ago, the Anglican Archbishop of Perth in Australia, around Easter time, uh, by the media, he was asked this question. Suppose we find the tomb of Jesus Christ and find his corpse there. What would that do to your faith? And in response, it wouldn't do anything because Jesus has risen in my heart. And that sounds commendable, but that's not what Scripture says. Because if Jesus had not risen from the dead, our faith is futile. What are we doing here? Might as well make the most of our lives, go travel the world, take, take Instagram photos, and, and view, view all the great things of life. Because this is all we have. This is it. However many years we have left, if the resurrection is not real, then our lives, our faith, Christianity, all goes down the drain. This resurrection, it means everything. Because if Jesus really rose from the dead, and if you place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, not only the one who forgives your sins, but also the one who conquers death, and in him we likewise will be resurrected with him for all eternity. I'll give three quick implications of what this means. Three quick observations. Number one, because of Jesus' resurrection, we too 
will be resurrected and transformed into eternal, glorified, resurrected bodies. There's a woman named Johnny Erickson Tata. She had a horrific accident at the age of 18 where she became paralyzed from the neck down to become a quadriplegic. Now, she grew up in the Episcopalian church, and if you know anything about their service, they sing a lot of hymns, they have processions, they have a lot of lights, uh, they have a lot of formal aspects of their liturgy. Even when they pray, the people, they get on their knees to pray. Obviously, we don't do that in our services. Now, she grew up in that church, and after her accident, she was at a conference, about five to 600 people, and the priest motioned for everyone to get on their knees to pray, and her, she was the only one who couldn't do that. And as she was there, looking at everyone praying on their knees, this is what she writes. This is her recounting that night. She said that she was in tears. And she says, but not out of pity, not because I felt awkward or different, but because I was reminded that in heaven, I will be free to jump up and dance and do aerobics. Although Jesus himself will be delighted that I am dancing for him, the first thing I will do is to drop on my grateful, resurrected, perfected knees. If I may add, a beautiful, glorified, perfected knees. And she says only after that, she's going to get back on her feet and dance for all eternity. It means that we ourselves will be transformed. I can dunk maybe. <laughs> not only that, not only will we be transformed, but this world will be transformed. A false misconception that people have of Christianity is the idea that when Jesus comes back, that he's going to destroy everything. Is what philosophers call annihilationism where he destroys everything with fire and brimstone, and he starts all over from scratch. And that is so far from the truth. Because not only is he going to come down, he's not going to simply just destroy everything and start all over again, but he's going to come down and transform everything into perfection. Which means that everything in this life is going to continue into eternity, but it's going to be perfect. When you go to work tomorrow and that Excel formula does not work and you invest your time and you think, what's the point of all this? The fruit of your work, it's not going to go away. When you give a cup of water in kindness in Jesus' name, that act, the fruit of that act is going to carry on into eternity. And not only that, everything that we do, even though it is flawed and inadequate, is going to be perfected. That's why when Martin Luther was asked, if you knew Jesus was going to come tomorrow, what would you do today? He said, I'd plant an apple tree. Why? Not only because he knows that it's going to continue on forever, but he also knows in his scripture that when Jesus comes back, that small apple tree is going to transform into this beautiful, glorified, organic, delicious apple tree. And he wants to see that. And you and I 
likewise, we'll see all those Excel sheets, every act of kindness, every work that you do on Monday morning, it's going to carry on. And it is only Christians who have a theology of this resurrection that can be motivated to love others, to do good in this world. Why? Because it does matter. It's not a religion where we just try to save as many people as we can get and go to heaven and run away from this world. No, we invest in this world. We love others. We sacrifice our lives for the sake of others because we know because of the resurrection, it's going to matter for eternity. The world will be transformed. That's why in Romans chapter 8, we'll study down the road that even all of creation is groaning for Jesus to come back because all the trees, all the mountains, they're all waiting to be perfected. Not only will we be transformed, the world will be transformed. And finally, the resurrection means there's no more goodbyes. No more goodbyes. You know, there's something about the way that we are wired that goodbyes are very hard. I think even now the most difficult place to be is at airports where you see many goodbyes. The other day I drove by Downingtown where I grew up and I tried to retrace my steps as I was growing up in that area as an immigrant family. And you know what? Nothing looked the same. And as I was looking at all these places, there's something about me that I was sad because I knew all those memories, I can't relive them anymore. All the things that I used to love and enjoy, they're not there. That goes to show, I'm sure you experienced it, there's something painful, something yearning when you say goodbye to a loved one in death. That's because that's not the way it's supposed to be. And the resurrection guarantees that there will be no more goodbyes. So a few years ago, I was meeting with a student, and her mother had died from cancer. Now, this student and her mother, they were both Christian. And the student, she knew that she would see her mother again in heaven. And as much as I was trying to encourage her with that fact, she couldn't smile. And as we talked more and more, I found out that she couldn't smile because she knows that in heaven, she might not be her mom anymore. Yes, she will be there, but what about all the memories that we've made, all the relationships that we made together, all the experiences that we had? Is it all just going to go away and we're going to just have a new chapter? And I asked her, when Jesus was resurrected, did the disciples recognize who he was? Her answer was yes. Did Jesus remember the disciples? Did they retain all the memories that they made here on this earth? Yes. There are no goodbyes in the resurrection. Actually, your relationship with one another will be furthered. It will be perfected. No more tears. No more heartache. I gave three quick reasons why the resurrection is so important to us. There's a book called Risen. If you want to look it up, it gives 50 reasons. We have time for three. Christianity hangs upon the resurrection. Without it, our religion is futile. So today I want to investigate what does it mean to have faith in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
to place our faith and trust in him. So there's three points. The first, genuine faith is based upon the evidence of Jesus' resurrection. It's based upon the evidence of Jesus' resurrection. Point two, faith is also based upon a personal encounter with Jesus. A personal encounter with Jesus. And finally, I just want to give an example of what genuine faith looks like. So faith based on evidence, faith based on personal encounter with Christ, and finally, an example of what that looks like. But before we continue deeper into our passage, let's pray one more time and ask him for his help as we study his word. Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you that through you, this resurrection, that we have eternal hope, that we can love others, we can be guaranteed that this world is not the end, we can be guaranteed that we will be transformed into perfection. God, we look forward to that day. We're confident of that day because 2,000 years ago, you truly did rise from the grave and you show us what was awaiting us in heaven. We thank you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So the first point, faith that is based on the evidence of Jesus' resurrection. I don't know how many of you guys are into science. I'm not. Uh, Isaac Newton clearly was a mathematical genius. If you know a little about him, he came up with the theory of gravity, uh, F equals MA, if you remember your high school science and math. However, at that time, he didn't have everything figured out. As he was studying the stars and the solar planet, he couldn't figure out how the planets could rotate around the sun on an even plane. Based on his calculations, it should be going up and down, and he couldn't figure out how all the planets could be aligned. Because he didn't have an explanation, he writes in his journal, simple mechanical causes cannot just happen to give birth to such a regularity in its circular motions. Therefore, he writes, this most beautiful system of the sun and planets and comets, it can only proceed from the counsel and dominion of an intelligent and powerful being with a capital B, God. Now from that story, this is where a lot of philosophers today get this concept called the God of the gaps. I don't know if you heard of it. God of the gaps. And what it is is, for anything that science cannot explain, anything where there is mystery and the unknown, all we have to say is God must be responsible for it. God knows about it, and God is in charge of it. And ever since that, even today, there's been a separation of what is true, what is factual, and what is knowledge versus what is spiritual, what is based on faith, what is mystic and esoteric, and he created this dichotomy. And we experience it today, the separation of the church and state, no religion in schools, for example. Why? Because knowledge, truth, is based upon hard, cold facts, empirical evidence, things we can see, things we can touch, things we can prove. But faith, that's in the realm of the unknown, esoteric. That's why we say things such as, it is evident, therefore. It is palpable. Even John Locke, that famous English philosopher, he once said, I believe because I do not know. I believe the things that I do not know. That's where my faith kicks in. 
But as one person says, he says, all the scientific knowledge, even all the scientific knowledge that we have, it rests upon faith commitments. You have to have faith to believe even the scientific conclusions that you make. And on top of that, faith too rests on evidence. Faith too rests on evidence. This separation of faith and knowledge that hasn't always been the case. It's been a modern phenomenon ever since Newton. And we experience it day to day in our Western cultures. But if you go in another culture, if you go back in history, it has always been understood that faith is based upon hard evidence. There is no separation there. And that's how gospel writer John, he presents the gospel resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that's what I want us to investigate, to see how the resurrection of Jesus Christ is not just some esoteric, mystic, uh, mystical event, but it's an actual historical happening. And I want to give some observations. First, if you look at verse 1 of chapter 20, what do you see? Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw the stone had been taken away from the tomb. You see, she's the first one to have seen this empty tomb. She runs back to the disciples and tells them about this empty tomb, thinking that people had robbed Jesus' body. So the disciples go back. They see the empty tomb. The disciples eventually go back home. But Mary, she stays behind. She stays at Jesus' empty tomb. And if you look here in verse 11, she's weeping. Weeping outside the tomb. And then all of a sudden, she hears a voice saying, Woman, why are you weeping? And she turns around and she sees the resurrected Jesus, the first person in history to have seen him. First person. This is inconceivable. This is hard to believe. You know why? Because in Jewish culture at that time, if you want to make any case, give any testimony, especially in court, the minimum number of witnesses that you need is two. And on top of that, only men can give factual testimonies. I looked it up myself. The Jewish mission of the Rosh Hashanah, chapter 1, verse 8. And when I saw that, oh, we're not the only ones that uses chapters and verses. But even in their books, it reads, this is the governing rule. All testimony that a woman gives is not fit to give. This is the worldview of the Jews back then. So if a woman's witness was not admissible, not fit to give, then why would you build a religion based upon a woman's testimony, especially if that religion came out of its Jewish roots? If you wanted to fabricate a religion back then, you would use witnesses like Peter and male Jews. At least two witnesses. The only explanation for Mary being the first to give evidence of the resurrected Jesus is if it really happened that way. Next observation we see. John, he's very detailed as he writes about this empty tomb. Chapter 20, verse 4. We see that Peter and John, they're running together. John outruns Peter. He reaches the tomb first. In verse 5, he's stooping in to look, and he sees the linen cloths laying there. But he did not go in. 
But Simon Peter, he comes in following him, and he goes inside the tomb, and he sees the linen cloth just laying there, and even the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloth, but folded up in a place by itself. You know, one of the circulating rumors during that time by the Roman guards and the Jewish leaders and priests was the rumor that Jesus hadn't really resurrected from the grave. Matthew, he writes in it in his own account. He says, the chief priests assembled with the elders, gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, tell the people that his disciples came by night and stole him away while the guards were asleep. And he writes, and this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Even today, it's not a surprise that we hear that. Jesus wasn't really resurrected. It's something that his disciples fabricated, something that the early church made up. But if Jesus' body was stolen in the middle of the night, it never would have looked like the scene that John is painting for us. First of all, if the tomb was ransacked, which happened a lot back then, it would not look in such an orderly account. Because when you steal someone's corpse, you don't take off its clothes. You take the whole thing. You take the whole body because you want all the jewels, all the jewelry that might be on that corpse. And on top of that, we read that there are Roman guards in front of this tomb. It is not a situation where they had all the time in the world to take off his cloth and to fold it and put it in the corner. And even if you did have the time, that's not how you rob the grave. But we see those clothes, they weren't just dropped in a heap, but they were folded up, not just left behind in a disorderly fashion. It does not look like a frantic crime scene where his body was stolen in the middle of the night. You see, because we, in our modern era, in our worldview, we cannot fathom someone coming back from the dead. Okay? Our scientific worldview, it doesn't allow for that. But then some reason, we tend to think that the people back then, the primitive people back then, that they believed in such things, such legends and tales and, and mythical stories, but in fact, their worldview did not allow for a resurrection just like us. If you know anything about Roman thought coming from Plato and Aristotle, their main idea was the body, anything that is physical is evil. And our aim in life is for the soul to escape its earthly prison. And so for anyone to go back to their earthly physical body. It was unheard of. Their worldview did not allow them to believe in a resurrection. Likewise, the Jews, they did not allow a resurrection to take place until the end of time. The one place that we read where the Jews believe in the resurrection is Daniel chapter 12, where at the end of time, God will finally bring all the peoples together, and then at that point, they will be resurrected. But for a resurrection to take place in our time, it does not fit in their worldview. We see a glimpse of that. In John chapter 11, there's a story of Jesus and Lazarus. Lazarus was dead. And his sister Martha was seeking Jesus' help. And Jesus says, your brother will rise again. And what does she say? She says, I know he will rise again on the last day. That's her Jewish worldview. 
She did not think that a resurrection could take place in her lifetime. So if you think it's hard for us to believe in a resurrection, it was just as hard, even heretical for them to believe in a resurrection. So we cannot use the excuse, well, they were primitive back then. That's where myths and legends existed. Now we are scientific. We have technology. We have evidence. We can't make that dichotomy. If it was a legend, if it was fake, and if it was a myth, a fabricated account, how should it read? How should this story be presented? You know one of the first things that Jesus says after his resurrection? You know, if you're writing a fake story, if you're writing this great legend, how would you write it? The first thing that comes out of Jesus' mouth. Probably something profound, right? Something incredible. Do you know what he says? I'm hungry. Do you have anything to eat? That's not how you write a legend. That's not how you write myth. The only reason why you write that is because it actually happened. Jesus says, do you have anything to eat? And the disciples, they give him a boiled fish. You don't write that unless it actually happened. You don't let a woman Jew be the first person to give witness to the resurrected Christ unless it really happened. Rodney Stark, a church historian, he estimated by the year 150 A.D., there was a global Christian population of 40,000 people. By 200 A.D., 50 years later, it rose to 218,000. Another 50 years after that, 1.2 million Christians. In a matter of 100 years, 40,000 Christians to 1.2 million Christians in the known world. And secular historians, they have a hard time trying to explain this. What was the sociological phenomena that enabled them to grow and to blow up like this? And you can try to present as much of this secular evidence as you can, but it does not fall into place. N.T. Wright, he says that the only way that the historical jigsaw puzzle lines up is if early Christianity really depended on an actual resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because you don't build a fake religion and explodes like this. You don't have Christian martyrs dying for their faith for something that is fake. The only way, Tim Keller, he writes this, it is hard to account for thousands of Jews virtually overnight worshiping a human being, Jesus, as divine. Especially when everything about their religion and their culture conditioned them to believe that not only was it impossible, but deeply heretical. The best explanation to change for that change was that many hundreds of them had actually seen the resurrected Jesus. So look at chapter 20, verse 8 with me. John the disciple, he runs into the tomb and he sees the linen cloths folded up in a place by itself. And in verse 8, he went in and he saw and he believed. Faith resting upon the evidence of Jesus' resurrection. It wasn't a mystical esoteric 
experience apart from facts, but it was him physically seeing the empty tomb and the grave clothes based on evidence, based on facts. And this is how genuine faith comes about. That's the first point, a little longer. The second point, faith is also based on a personal encounter with Jesus. A personal encounter with Jesus. So we established that our faith is not some esoteric faith. It is based on evidence and facts. But at the same time, it can't just be that. It can't just be that. But it also requires a personal encounter with Jesus because evidence alone is not sufficient for faith. You know, one Christian writer, he says, you know, if I wanted to take this idea that faith is based upon evidence to the fullest, in my skeptic mind, I would have wanted the, mer- uh, the medical papers that show that Jesus was alive. I myself would have wanted to check his liver and his vital organs. And what he's saying is, I can go all the way, but at a certain point, I have to have an encounter with Jesus. Because all the evidence can be presented before you. But there will come a time where you step out in faith, in relationship with God, and believe. All of us, we live by faith. All of us. There is no separation here. When you walked in this morning, you had faith that this chair will support your weight. When I had dinner last night, I had faith that my wife wouldn't poison it. When I use a dollar bill at the store, I have faith in the currency system that it has value. We operate on faith. We are not people who are void of faith, but we are people destined, wired to have faith. And there will be a time, a moment, where you have to go out in faith in relationship with Jesus Christ. My question is, how long are you going to wait? I know some of you guys, you guys are genuinely investigating, seeking trying to figure out what this Christianity means, and you are learning, coming out to community groups. But how much do you need faith? How much? At a certain point, the evidence is there. And what requires is for you to step out and believe. We see Nicodemus introduced in our passage here. And we know about this Nicodemus. In John chapter 3, all the way in the beginning, he comes in the middle of the night. He himself is a Pharisee. He's a a ruler of the Jews. And he comes in the middle of the night because he knows that he's going to be ostracized if he's seen with Jesus. So in that encounter with Jesus, do you remember the conversation they have? Jesus tells them things like, unless you are born again, you will not see the kingdom of God. And he goes... How can a man be born again? He says, unless you are born of water and the spirit, you cannot be born again. And they have this encounter. And if you remember, that's where we get that famous quote, the famous verse. For God so loved the world, he sent his one and only begotten son, that whoever shall believe in him. That personal encounter stayed with Nicodemus from chapter 3 all the way to chapter 20. And eventually, he stepped out in faith. We see in our passage that he gathered 75 pounds of myrrh and aloe, fit for a king. That's not how you do typical burials back then. 
It shows that he saw Jesus as king for who he really was. And it didn't happen until he stepped out in faith, until he had that personal encounter with Jesus Christ. Whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For many of us, what's it going to take? How much evidence do you need? But do you believe that Jesus wants to have relationship with you? And you can have all the evidence in the world. That's not going to be your hope. There's a woman by the name of Ada Lineman. Ada Lineman. After struggling with various addictions to alcohol and others, she was constantly glued to the TV. Uh, she shares that how at that point she was at the lowest point of her life. But during that time, she also recounts how she experienced grace for the first time. This is her testimony. I'll read it word for word. At that point, God led me to vibrant Christians who knew Jesus personally as their Lord and Savior. I heard their testimonies that they reported what God had done in their lives. And finally, God had spoken into my heart. And by God's grace and love, I entrusted my life to Jesus. He immediately took my life into his saving grasp and began to transform it radically. My destructive addictions were replaced by a hunger and thirst for scripture and for fellowship with Christians. And I was able to recognize sin clearly as sin instead of make excuses for it. I can still remember the delicious joy I felt for the first time. Black was once black again and white is again white. Now this testimony, it probably sounds like many of the testimonies we hear today. Perhaps you have such a similar testimony. But this Ada Lineman, she wasn't an average woman. She was actually one of the most well-renowned New Testament scholars of her time. Growing up, she was well-respected, studying under the most influential scholars, Rudolf Bultmann, Ernest Fuchs, her first book was a bestseller. She became professor of theology at Braunschweig University in Germany. A few years after that, she wrote her second doctoral dissertation, awarded the honorary title of professor of New Testament and theology in Marburg. She was inducted into the prestigious Society for New Testament Studies. And even after all of that, her mind filled with the evidences and all that scripture could give about Jesus. It wasn't until she had that personal encounter with him. She'd been studying the Bible for years, knowing the words of this book inside out, analyzing it, assessing it, figuring it out with her own intellectual prowess. But what happened to her was she stopped studying scripture as she was above it. That's a warning for us. When we do approach the word of God, how do you approach it? Do you approach it with a skeptical heart saying, all right, God, prove to me if you're real. Who's God? Theologian says the design of opening the understanding of the gospel 
is that we may understand the gospel. Not that we may be wise above what is written, but that we may be wiser in what is written and made to be wise to salvation by it. That's what it means. That's what it means for Jesus to open up your heart and let go of this superior attitude to this Christianity and see if Jesus wants this relationship with you. I want to give an example of what this faith looks like. First, we establish that it is based on evidence. And secondly, at the same time, it also depends on a personal encounter with Jesus Christ. And I want to give an example, a character in our passage who embodies both. Who is a model of our faith. And who do you think that person is? It's Thomas. It's Thomas. And if you've been at church for a while, that should be a surprise because the nickname that we have for Thomas is Doubting Thomas. He's the one famous for doubting the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But if you look in chapter 20, verse 25, we see that all the other disciples, they've seen the resurrected Jesus, but Thomas hasn't seen him yet. And when they tell him, he says, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of those nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. I sounded like that once too. And so from this, how can he be the model of faith for you and me? Well, if you read on, eight days later, Thomas is with the disciples in a room. All the doors are locked. Jesus comes, stands amongst them and says, peace be with you. And the first thing that Jesus does is go to Thomas and says, Thomas, touch this. Place your hand. us, wherever you are in your relationship with God, say that you're at a point where you don't even know if he exists. Say that you've been a Christian for quite some time, but your faith is so weak and you have all of these doubts. You know and you can have the assurance that the first thing that Jesus is going to do is go to you. Whatever you're seeking, whatever evidence you need, he is gracious enough to show you. That he is real. And you will say, my Lord and my God. Have you caught the fact that Thomas was looking for the physical evidence? He wanted to touch the scars to verify that it was Jesus Christ. And when Jesus says, here, touch it, do you know what he does? He doesn't touch Jesus' scars. He doesn't need them anymore. All it needs was a personal encounter with Christ. And it goes from, I want to see, I want to touch to my Lord and my God. And that's the model of faith for you and I. Because you might have come into this place. You might have come approaching Christianity with all of your doubts, all of your requests for evidence. Perhaps knowing that something about this life, something about this, it's not it. There is something more than that job that I'm wanting. There is something more than that relationship. There is something more to what I'm living day by day. Maybe there is something more like the resurrection. And if that's the reason why you are taking steps towards Christianity, be assured God is going to come into your life. Whatever doubts you have, 
Whatever evidence you need, he's going to say here. Perhaps for some of you, it's the evidence of seeing that true love does exist. Perhaps you've been burned too many times out there. You never know what it means to be unconditionally loved. Not based on what you do. Not based on who you are. But to have the love of God the Father for all eternity. Not less, not more, but perfect. Perhaps for some of you, you want purpose that you know enough that there is more to life than what you are living now. And you come and you approach to God and say, God, give me the evidence that there is more to this. And he will give you purpose. A purpose that lasts for eternity. Say that you want community. You've been alone all your life. And perhaps you came to this church and you got a taste, just a little taste, of what that eternal, heavenly community you see God give you the evidence that you need to know not only that he exists but he loves you and he is after you and he will keep on going what can you say in that takes faith you might not have everything figured out you know philosopher at Liberty University, right down the street, very, very bright. He says there's three kinds of doubts, three kinds of doubts in this life. The first he calls the factual doubt. It's all the details. You're not sure how everything panned out. You're not sure what happened the days after Jesus ascended into heaven. You're not sure about this uh, insignificant detail. And he says it's okay to have those doubts. I have them. He also said there's emotional doubts. Maybe you are a believer, and maybe there are times in your life when you're not really sure. God, are you there? It doesn't seem like it. And perhaps you doubt. And he says, just like Thomas, we have those doubts. We have those doubts. There's a third doubt. And this is what we have to be warned against. It's called the volitional doubt. It's a doubt that doesn't want to know. A doubt that doesn't want to know and have a relationship with him. Tim Keller says, there's a kind of doubt that actually wants answers, but there's also a kind of doubt that doesn't want answers. Don't have the latter one. And if you're not a believer here today, let me ask you, what kind of doubts do you have? If you have genuine doubts that really want to know who this Jesus is, be assured he's going to meet you where you are. But you have this latter kind of doubt. I don't even want to know. I hope that he will change your heart. If you struggle with this, and all of us, we have doubts, keep knocking. He will open the door. He will open the door. You know, one person once told me as I was struggling with a lot of these things about my faith, he says, you know what, Luke? Sometimes... You need to doubt your doubts before you doubt your beliefs. <laughs> you need to doubt your doubts before you doubt your beliefs. I don't know everything in this Bible. I do know a couple of things. That you're created in the image of God. 
he loves you and he sent his one and only son for you and that he did rise again from that third day. And because he rose again, you will rise again. That you will be transformed, the world will be transformed, and there will be no more goodbyes. My hope and prayer is that every single one of you in this sanctuary, that we'll see each other in heaven.